Welcome to SCG Church's podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. We also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. Thanks so much for listening. Everybody who is online, welcome. Uh, we still got lots of folks coming in here. And so as people are grabbing a seat and uh, coming, to, coming in to, uh, to begin. So I, I walked into the room tonight mm. and everyone gave me a hard time for my beanie that did I'm wearing right now. Did you forget that we were going to be online? No, today, or? Did you not do your hair? Today or? is, I did not do my hair. Mm. Um, today is Tuesday and Tuesday is my day off. And so mm. I thought, you know what? I'm going to share... Um, what I actually look like on Tuesdays. Yeah. Wish you didn't. <clears throat> yeah, no, well, I disagree. <laughs> I feel like you actually look a little bit better than you normally do mm. on Tuesdays. This would be the, it's pol- the lighting. This is actually it's the lighting. This is the polished version of what I look like on yeah. Tuesdays. So um, they were at, everybody was asking me or making fun of me about my beanie. It's a yeah. tractor supply beanie, yeah. which your husband asked, "Have you ever been to Tractor Supply?" Mm. Yeah, mm. a lot. Oh. Okay, they practically. Wow. Know me there. It's just Shane's, get it's their Shane's birthday today, so don't make fun of him. Oh my Ooh, goodness! He's shame. never looked so good at fifty. Yes. Um, <laughs> Burn. You know what's funny? The story about these beanies. I have uh, five of them because wow. I bought them for three dollars each, so I can just rotate them in. I and feel out. like so right now all you're doing is just people. The respect level. Of I know everyone it's going in down. the room. It's, it's just going, going down. Up I just want up. you to know what a good steward I am of yeah. uh, finances. That's good. You know? yeah, the other thing That's you good. notice is Doyle isn't here, yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. could wear a beanie yeah. and I could get away with it. So yeah, it's better than the headgear I'm wearing on this thing. There you go. No, you look good, Britney Spears. Yeah, um, so anyway, work. okay. You guys doing well? Yeah. Ready to go? Ready to rock. I think so. Is this the, what, next week is the last week? Yeah, yeah, this is week four. Oh my goodness, we're almost done. How you many may... people are in this? Um, how many like people are watching uh, this series? One million. Okay, okay. all right, that's a lie. So, a I thousand? I don't know, yeah, somewhere around a there. A thousand people, yeah. okay, good. Hey, guess what, um, by the way, speaking of, a Good Friday service is going to be popping. Yes. Because it's going to be our first service back yes. indoors. Yes. yes. And uh, if you haven't registered, I'm just going to give you like an insider tip. We're getting really close to having to shut it down because we're about to hit our maximum. So you got to make sure you sign up if you want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you want your Good Friday to be good. That's right. You should register. Thanks. Wow. Mom jokes. I didn't even <laughs> know those were a thing, but here they are. Okay. All right. Well, um, as usual, if you have any questions throughout the night, um, if you're in the room, you can raise your hand and we'll get to you. If you are online, uh, we will um, be watching all of the different platforms. So you can comment in the comment section or you can text in. And I see the text number at the bottom of the screen right there. And I will be monitoring all of those and asking the questions along the way. And um, yeah, so Autumn, are you up today? Yes, I am. I just want to say one thing. If you have the notes that you downloaded online, they should work. But if you have them here in person, you just want to look at them this way, like, because I I printed them wrong. And then there's a slide that's out of order, so... Cool. That's going to yeah. be fun. Mm. Yeah. So you'll figure it out. It'll be great. Okay. So, and if they're watching online, where do they get the notes at? Um, I believe they are in the comments. They can just click on them. Okay. So then... if any of our monitor uh, yep. moderators are on there right now, you can yep. go ahead and copy, paste the link into there, and we can get all those up uh, right now. Okay. All right, Adam, you're up. Okay. So... For some reason, last week just hit me like a ton of bricks. So I felt like there was just so much information and it was just really kind of all jumbled together. But this week, I think, is a little bit clearer. So I feel like, 
<sighs> like this week is a little bit more of a breath of fresh air. So you may be wondering how we only have two weeks left and we're only on chapter 14 and there's 28. You might think we're halfway, but we're almost, you know, we're, we're, this is four-fifths of the way through. We're, we're going to be at the end of the day. So, um, okay, so this section we're doing chapters 14 through 18 today, um, and this section we said at the beginning is going to be about kingdom relationships. So everything today kind of roughly falls into the relationship category, um, how people within the kingdom, how believers treat each other, okay? So it starts out in, we just finished up the last little discourse, and if you remember, right before the discourse, uh, Jesus had just talked to his mom and his brothers, you know, who are my mother and who are my brothers? And he immediately goes in, um, he has the discourse, and then he comes back out, and he's in a new narrative section. And in um, chapter 13, verse 53, he heads out to Nazareth, um, his hometown. And basically the summary of this section of Nazareth is that um, a prophet, you know, he says the famous saying, a prophet is, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. Um, and basically from, from there he then goes on and we get this little discussion about uh, King Herod and he killed John and he's heard about Jesus, okay? So the main kind of summary of this section that you should see from 1353 to 1412 is um, some of the signs uh, that Jesus has been waiting for, they're starting to happen, okay? So for the first thing is he's gone up to Nazareth. He's kind of gone everywhere there is to go in Galilee. He has saturated the area. Everyone has heard the good news of the kingdom, I would say, in this area. And it's kind of like you think of like a wet sponge that, you know, like the, no, it can't hold any more water. It, it's, it's saturated. And we're starting to see people just rejecting him, not because they hate his message or whatever. They just don't want to hear it anymore. They don't want to hear from this little punk kid that grew up down the street from them. So that's happening in Nazareth. And then we hear uh, King Herod. So he is the king of the area and he's now hearing Jesus's name. And Jesus is pulling crowds of thousands and thousands of people. And this wicked king has just killed, we find out in this section, has just killed John the Baptist. And he now knows Jesus's name. You don't want this guy knowing in your name. And so um, these are just signs that whatever Jesus has been waiting for, that we've been hearing about him saying like, don't say, it's, don't, don't talk about me, the time isn't right yet. I'm telling you the time is coming. These are signs that the time, time is coming. So these ne the next section that we're going to get into um, has kind of three different sections. So it starts in 14 verse um, 15. And Basically, this is going to be, uh, I'm going to call uh, this section, this next little section, has three different uh, stories in it. Um, I'm calling this the Galilee Capstone Mission, okay? And so what happens in this, this section from 14 verse 15 through 14 verse 36 um, is Jesus baking, making kind of one last tour of Galilee and kind of doing a lot. There's not a whole lot new that he does in this section. We've kind of seen pretty much everything that he does. We've seen it before. Um, 
in a different way. So, I mean, we haven't seen him multiply loaves and fishes at this point, but that happens in this section. Um, We haven't seen him walk on water, but we have seen him calm the storm. We know that he has power over nature already. So this doesn't like blow our minds anymore. Um, And then we also see him in this section go around and he heals people. And at this point, the only distinction from about this healing is now he's just healing with a, like they just touch his cloak and he doesn't even notice it anymore. They're just power is just going out of him all over the place. Um, The thing that ties these whole three sections, and this is, I was talking to Matt about it and he just told me I'm a nerd. Um, But the thing that I thought was so cool is this is kind of like an English major-y thing that that has come out in some of the commentaries, is all of these stories, they're all tied together by bread. So you guys read it, you look through it, and you'll see that bread ties all all of these stories together, even down into the story of the yeast. And so I'm going to dig into that just a little bit. Um, But basically what this whole section is, we're going to see, because right after the Galilee capstone mission, we get into this whole discussion in uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 20, with um, some leaders that have come up from Jerusalem. And they get into an argument with Jesus about the purity laws. And basically, I'm just going to summarize what their, their big question that they're asking is, who gets to be on the inside in God's kingdom? Who gets to be an insider in God's kingdom? And um, the purity laws that the Jews had, they really, they defined what it meant to be a Jew and what it meant to be an outsider. And so in enforcing this, the, the, and by the way, these people who came up from Jerusalem, this is another sign that it's time. These are the head honchos. This is like a, one, one commentator said, this is basically like Congress coming to Seacoast and being like, all right, Cody, we have some questions for you. Like these are the rulers and hopefully he would be dressed a little nicer. I'd be like, don't ask me, look at me. <laughs> Um, So these are big guys. Like it is a sign that we've got a king paying attention to him. We've got Congress paying attention to him. People are noticing Jesus. He is not flying under the radar anymore. And so this question of who gets to be involved in the kingdom really kind of ties in with this idea of bread. If you think of bread being... um, the, the, the good news of the kingdom of God, that, that you are invited to be in the kingdom of God. Well, we know from that first section, from the Galilee capstone mission, that Israel is in. You are invited to the kingdom of God. But what happens is the, the Jewish leaders come and they say, all right, there's all these purity laws. And immediately after that, this is the last time that, um, that well, in this section, this is the end of, of Jesus's big ministry in Galilee. And he actually leaves Galilee and he takes the good news to the Gentiles. So he goes across the sea. We've seen him cross the sea before with the pigs. Um, but this time he really, he goes and he has kind of a whole mission there. Um, and you have to read between the lines to see this, but the very first miracle he does after this is he casts a demon out of um, a Canaanite woman's daughter, so a Gentile woman's daughter. And Matt's going to dig into that a little bit. Um, but he goes and he does every, the things that he'd been doing with the demon possession he, um, in Galilee, he does with the, the non-Jews. Then he goes and he does all those healings that he just did in, 
Galilee, he does those with the Gentiles as well. And, then the, and the reason that we know, um, you can see in this section, 15, 29 through 31, that this is happening to non-Jews is at the end of that little section, he, they say, they give praise to the God of Israel. If they were Jews, if they were Israelites, they would have just given praise to God. But it specifically has that phrase, the God of Israel. And so these are non-Jews that Jesus is bringing the message to. And then he goes and he does a second loaves and fishes miracle um, in the mission to the Gentiles. And so what this is saying is this bread of the kingdom It's available to the Gentiles too. Whatever this good news is, the Israelites are in and the Gentiles are in too. And I don't think that the disciples really get this picture completely now, but Matthew includes it because it is gonna become a big deal down the road when we get into Acts. And so what it means to be in these kingdom relationships, it's going to be in a community of both Jews and Gentiles. Okay, then we have this little section where the Pharisees ask for a sign and Jesus basically says, if you haven't seen all of the signs that I've been doing, you are blind. And then he warns the disciples to be careful of the yeast of the Pharisees. Okay, that's it. Jesus is done with his missions at this, this point, okay? There are only two more big miracles that Jesus performs aside from the resurrection um, in the rest of Matthew, okay? So one of them is, um, is coming here and then one of them is a blind guy getting healed and then that's it for the rest of Matthew. There's not a whole lot more miracles that happen. Um, and what happens to, to cause this big turn of this, from, from this whole mission that Jesus has been walking around teaching and preaching is we have the proclamation, uh, the recognition by the disciples, namely Peter, that Jesus is the Messiah. They, they, they announce that Jesus is the Messiah in 16 verses 13 through 20 is that announcement. And um, just, just a, another kind of little cool thing. This is the furthest north point that Jesus has made on um, in all of his journeys. So it happens in Caesarea Philippi or something like that. And it's the furthest north that we know that Jesus went on his travels. So it's almost like he's like traveling around and around and around and around and around, gets far away, and now he's gonna go back down to Jerusalem. Everything from here is gonna be headed down to Jerusalem. So this is kind of, I did this for my kids because I think they might, and maybe my husband a little bit too. So we have this announcement that Jesus is the Messiah and this little symbol right here is, have you guys ever played Mario Kart? I know some of you have played Mario Kart and there's this part where you like drive across the arrows on the ground and they like super zoom you, you know? So that is what this announcement does. You're not like a regular mom. You're like a cool mom. (laughs) I play Mario Kart. (laughs) Okay. I played it like once with my kids. I used to play it in college. But anyway, so they, this, this announcement that Jesus is the Messiah is basically super zooming Jesus to the cross. Like everything from here on out, it is focused on the cross. So the next half of Matthew is dedicated to his journey to Jerusalem and then to his, the passion narrative. So super zoom to the cross. There's kind of a cool little... Um, like a structure that happens in the next little bit starting in 1621 through 1722 through 23. Um, There's a series of um, a, a pattern that happens, okay? So we have Jesus announces that he's going to die. So 
we know the end of the story, so it doesn't make, you know, it's not, it doesn't hit as, as super illogical. But Jesus announces that he's, he's the Messiah, and then the very next thing he says is, okay, so I'm going to die now. And, and it's like, this should really strike us as illogical because it was very illogical to the disciples. So we get an announcement that Jesus is going to die. Then we get a big disappointment. The disciples disappoint Jesus. They, um, they do something poorly. Then Jesus talks about glory. Then the disciples disappoint Jesus again. And then we get another announcement that Jesus is going to die. So this is called a, um, a chiasm. It's a Jewish way of um, arguing or thinking. And so um, we get Jesus's announcement of death. Then we have Peter who says, no, you can't die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That is the whole point of why I came. So that's Peter disappointing Jesus. Then Jesus goes on in the next little section to talk about the future glory that is gonna be to come, the eternal kingdom, the, 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 the place that we're going to live with the Father forever. He goes on in that. And then the next little glory section is the transfiguration, where Jesus actually um, is transfigured into, uh, you know, the, the disciples get a glimpse of what he's going to look like in eternity. And Matt is again going to go into the transfiguration and correct me if I said anything wrong about that. And then uh, the, the Jesus is going to come back down and he's going to be disappointed with the disciples again because they didn't get down and they can't even exercise a demon, um, which he's shown them how to do. You're, you know, already they've, they've already had the opportunity to do that. And then he finishes off with his um, last announcement of the cross. Okay, so that's it for the narrative section. And we're going to hop into the discourse section. So the discourse section um, in chapter 18 is a really cool chapter in the Bible. It's just a super, super cool chapter. It's so practical um, because what this whole discourse is talking is about is how do we as Christians live together? <laughs> like we can see there's going to be conflict. We've got these Gentiles and these Jews living together. How are we going to live together in peace? And this section is really, or this discourse is broken up into two main questions. It's divided by two main questions. The first question, it starts out and it says, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? And then the next section is going to be started by the question of how many times we should forgive people. Um, the first section that started with the, the who's the greatest question, it really is defined by just the idea of all these kind of little examples of how we can live together. Um, so the first thing to notice about this section is that you guys, Christians, we, we, that's you, um, we're little ones. Whenever you see little one in there, it's not, he's using a child like holding up a, a, a child as kind of like an example or a, a picture of it. But really what that child represents is every believer. We are little ones, okay? So when you read little one, think yourself. Um, and then he tells these different stories. I included the, the story about the fish with the coin in his mouth in this section um, because I think it fits really nicely into the idea of how we should think about ourselves. He talks about children in that section as well. And so I think it fits in. But if you guys don't like it there, you can move it back over here if you want. Um, but basically the, the point of that story to me is that as people who live in God's kingdom, we need to act from a place of security, not from insecurity. So he says, we are his children. And so we can pay, pay the temple tax. We don't have to pay the temple tax, but whatever we do, we act from the knowledge that we are God's children. 
The second one is he holds up a child. That's my picture of a baby. For some reason, I thought I was an artist tonight. Like I drew all sorts of pictures. My house has smoke coming out of it. I don't know what's going on. But this is my little baby. Um, and, and basically the whole picture of him holding the child up in front of uh, the people is low is good. Like if you have low status, that's a good thing in the kingdom. If you are little, it means you are great. Then we have this whole thing about like cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, poking out your eye. We've seen that before on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, But what he's saying here is that we need to, in every possible way, in the strongest possible terms, we reject evil in our lives. We reject evil that we could uh, influence other people towards. We reject evil that we are leaning towards ourselves. We completely reject it. And, you know, our feet take us places, our hands do things, our eyes desire things. So those are kind of traditional ways of looking at that, that we need to reject evil in the strongest possible terms. Then we have the story of the 99 for one, the sheep. Um, The point of that is that every member of this body, every single one is important. And then I think one of the very best parts of this chapter is uh, Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20. And this is how we reconcile when we are um, at odds with another believer. And so basically it just says, if you have a problem with someone, go talk to them. That's your first, your first line of defense, go talk to them. And who knows, maybe you'll fix things, okay? If you talk to them and things don't get fixed, bring someone else and talk to them again. And who knows, maybe it'll get fixed. And then, well, but maybe it won't, maybe it doesn't get fixed. Then you bring them before the church and hopefully it get fixed. Okay, so that's kind of the the goal of the whole thing. Like, hey, this is how we live together. And then we get down here, because now Jesus, since you brought up people being mean to us and people sinning against us, how how many times are we supposed to forgive? And, And Jesus goes in and gives us this huge example of how much greater God's forgiveness is um, anything that God that we could possibly try to forgive is just a, a grain of sand compared to the ocean of God's forgiveness. And it really is, I just, one of the commentators in this section was talking about the talents. And I didn't really understand how huge of a number uh, the, that this story of talents was. It's like literally someone saying, I owed you a gazillion dollars. Like it's more money. It's like 20 years worth of wage. 20 years wages is like one talent. Like it's just an unheard of amount of money that nobody could possibly ever even hope to pay back um, is what this one debtor owes. And then he goes and strangles somebody over a thousand dollars and he owed a gazillion dollars. Like this is a very, uh, it's a hyperbole that Jesus is using here. And so the reason that we are supposed to forgive times infinity, like we really, we really need to forgive. Um, It's very important to God that we forgive our, our fellow believers is somehow we owe this forgiveness. This is something that God takes so incredibly serious in our life to the point that if we do not forgive, it will block God's forgiveness in our own life. So, yeah, I think that's it for me. Sorry, it's kind of long tonight. That was good. That was really good. Thank you. Okay. So um, let's start with questions in the room, and then we also have some questions online, and I have some questions as well. 
from these chapters, because these are like really important chapters. So uh, anybody in the room, we have a microphone that'll come around and just raise your hand if you have a question, and um, we will get to you first. Anybody know? Okay. All right. Um, question that we got online was for... Uh, so I'll just read it. It says, Pastor Doyle briefly explained what the Greek word uh, 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 ekklesia is in Matthew 6.18 or 16.18. What is a more in-depth meaning of the word ekklesia in the Bible? Also, um, what does it mean in Greek context? Second, why is the word translated differently in Acts 19, which is in a Greek setting? Lastly, does the Greek meaning and context have any relevance to us? So, um, that sounds like that person already knows the answer to that question. I think oh, did I, I, did, question? I did not. I did not. <laughs> I did not write that. Um, do you? I did have when you were doing that because we got this question. and I did look it up really quick. Um, so, and I do want to talk about ecclesia because that seems like a pretty big deal because that's like why we're here. Um, so the the idea of ecclesia in the Greek is it's, it's not a religious word. Now, it's become a religious word or a lot of religious connotation has been applied to it um, because uh, it is just simply a, a way to describe an assembly or a group or a meeting. Um, and so when Jesus says, I'm going to build my ecclesia, what he's talking about is a group of people who come together. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But in Acts, what was it, 19, um, the reason why it's translated as assembly there, but church in, in Matthew, is because it's referring to um, a meeting. It's a meeting of citizens. It's not a religious meeting. It's, um, it's, uh, it's a uh, it's a meeting of non-believers and believers and people. It's actually a riot that's taking place. And so the reason why it's translated assembly there is because it's used in a secular context and it's uh, church and here because it's used in a religious context. Okay. Um, any questions about, about that so far? Because I do have a lot of questions about ecclesia. Okay. Here's a question I have. Is um, in the one that you just said, it talks about in 1817, um, to come to uh, the individual, then bring somebody or two, peop- two or three people, and it says bring it to the church, which one, I want to know how does that happen in today's context? Um, and then it says if they don't then respond to that, then we're supposed to treat them as a pagan or tax collector. Mm-hmm. So what does that all mean? Okay, so first question is, um, okay, if we bring it to them, we bring some people with us, one, who should we bring with us? Mm-hmm. And the other is then how do we bring it to the church? What do you think? Uh, Okay, so the first thing to point out is that these are all believers, the way that this is how you reconcile with another believer. Uh, So that would be the first thing. Um, The second thing was, first off, I don't think that anybody should really have to ask this question because nobody is ever going to do the first part. (laughs) You guys, like we are all so very much avoiders of actually going to somebody and telling them that they hurt our feelings um, within the body of Christ. Like maybe we'll do that with a family member. It is so really, really difficult to actually go to tell somebody that they have hurt your feelings. So that would be your first chance is just to go and actually talk to somebody uh, first (laughs) before you make sure you do that first. Um, but the second thing would be to, to, I would say, go to the person who is also most closely connected to the person with you. So if you are in a small group with somebody, um, go to another small group person, somebody else that's in your rooted group, um, and go together with the person. Because the, the purpose is restoration. It's not like an aha, got you. Um, it's, it's to actually help the person. And so whoever you think, that another believer, that would actually help that person the most and help them to be able to understand the, the nature of their wrong, um, that's who 
you should bring with you. That would be the second person. And then how you would involve the whole church. Like, do we get up in front of like church during announcements and be like, okay, guys, uh, this is the awkward part of the service. (laughs) Okay. That would be very awkward. That would be Um, so fun. I would say uh, the way that I've seen it done, I think really well is at that point, that would be potentially involving like your rooted leader, uh, involving uh, a larger the larger community uh, that you are involved in, obviously not the whole church on Sunday, um, because that, that would just take up our whole time. Mm. We got lots of conflict. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but no, I, again, the I feel like we could is, just do my whole family just yeah. during that whole time. We're just yeah. like, all right, it's the Surratt drama this week. What do we got going yeah. on? Let's talk about it. It's not public shaming, it's restoration. Um, and that's, that's the goal of the whole thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it says here though, at the very end in verse 17, treat them as you would a pagan or a oh, yeah. tax collector if so, they don't respond I mean, to it. Correct. How did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? Like we think, oh, that means you're supposed to treat them mean. You're supposed to treat them bad. But Jesus hung out with pagans and tax collectors. Jesus um, had dinner with them. You know, it was, he just basically treated them. It, what he's saying is don't treat them as a believer anymore. Like that's, that's the sad part is if, I mean, but cause think about it, somebody who's resisted your personal plea, um, to, you know, to, for reconciliation, they've resisted you and another person's plea for reconciliation. They've resisted the entire church's plea for reconciliation and their agreement that that person is in sin. They've, they've resisted all of that. They are acting like a non, a non-believer. They've taken themselves out of that ecclesia. Um, and so you treat them now like a, non, a non-believer. So don't go to them and share your deepest, you know, spiritual struggles anymore um, because you wouldn't do that with a non-believer. Okay, so I have, this is, I could go, we could spend the entire time on this, which I will try to hustle through this, is this is probably one of the biggest issues that um, we fail at in the church today mm-hmm. is, you know, actual conflict resolution. Here's the hard part though, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tag this to what Paul says and see what, how, how we make sense of this. So when Paul's talking about disputes in the church, and not just disputes, but like sin that someone will not repent of, that calls mm-hmm. themselves a Christian, they're in the church, they've been confronted by their sin, and yet they refuse to repent of it. Here's what he says, and I want to get your guys' take on this, because this is one of those verses that we totally try to ignore, um, but, I, you know, we, we should probably pay attention to it. First Corinthians 5 11 says this, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slander, or a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Oh, what do we do with that then? Because now it says like, okay, if they, you've gone through the process, they refuse to repent or to reconcile. Now Paul is saying, he's kind of like upping the ante a little bit. And he's like, don't even just not treat them as an unbeliever. Treat them, don't even associate with them. How do we make sense of that? Because I thought we were supposed to love people and we're supposed to encourage them. And how do we... I think, so one, context, context, context. So uh, Paul is talking in Corinthians. I think that might specifically be, like he's dealing with a lot of issues of believers who are acting like non-believers and trying to have everybody tell them that it's okay. Um, They have like a really weird sexual sin that's going on in that church. And um, and this person is, is just saying, 
no, everything that I'm doing is fine. And the whole church is saying, oh yeah, you're right. That is fine. We're okay with it. And um, the purpose of discipline is actually to get people to change their habits and to change their behaviors. And so I think there's a distinction here between what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying. Um, Jesus is not saying... um, that you, I mean, like the idea of treating someone like a tax collector or sinner and, and ha- continuing to have um, a relationship with them is different than what Paul is saying because Paul is saying that's a, a person who is, um, I don't know, help me here. Okay, so. What the, am I saying? Well, yeah, so it, we'll get to questions because I see a lot of hands getting raised. So let me, um, let me give you an example because this was something that when I was a young adult pastor, we would encounter all the time. So uh, a not so uh, rare situation would be we have somebody who is a professing Christian, is a part of the church community, but has moved in with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And so their small group goes to them and goes, hey, you can't do that. You know, like we've been called to certain lifestyle and whatever, and they just say, no, I'm not gonna do it. You know, I I love this person, whatever. And so then that group would be in a place where they have to decide, well, what do we do? And a lot of our natural inclination, I think, especially in our culture is, well, I'm just going to keep loving them where they're at, and then hopefully they're going to come back. And I would have to tell them, actually, that's not the right response, Mm -hmm. is the right response is to say, I love you, but I cannot enable you. It's kind of like you would with an alcoholic is, look, um, if you refuse to get help and admit that there's an issue here, then we're going to have to cut you off because we will not continue to enable you, which is... It feels harsh, but what we're doing is we're saying, I'm going to cut you off in hopes that you will experience what it, that isolation, and then you will say, you know what, I need to come back into that community of believers. Because what you're allowing them to do is you're allowing them to have Jesus and their sin. You're allowing them to be in the community, but also in rebellion. And I think what Paul and Jesus are getting across here is, look, we're going to love you, but eventually we're going to say, hey, if you are unrepentant in your sin, we cannot continue to, to allow you to be a part of this community, which sounds like so crazy mm-hmm. in our culture, but that's kind of what he's getting at here. So I have some hands that are raised. So let's go around with the mic. I knew that this was going to get some people kind of fired up. So let's see what we got here. Hey, yeah. so this isn't a, a question, but this is just a thought. Um, I've had uh, a lot of uh, people that are not Christians, my family members, that say the reason they're not Christians is because Christians do this or Christians do that. And I think what they're trying to tell us is that we're trying to help each other represent Christ correctly. And that if we live a certain lifestyle that the people around us are gonna look at the church and go, you know, how do I trust that? It's, you know, certain people do these things and they're professing this. And so that's kind of my thought behind it is that it's not, it is for that person in particular, but it's also for the call of Christ in that we're to uh, represent him. And so we're trying to help each other represent him because I have family members that look at, they come to church and they look at Christians at church and they go, well, you know, my goodness, you know. So yeah, Jesus says like, if if you're salt and you've lost your saltiness, um, you're no longer effective anymore. And so if you're a watered down version of Christianity, you're not really any good for anything. And so that's kind of like, and not any good for yourself and for the people who are watching you. And so I I think there is that, that place where we have to go, look, 
Um, we're here to preserve, and if you're a watered-down version, you're not preserving anything. And so those are one of those like real difficult, you know, tough, tough topics. So, okay, uh, and so, I think we got another okay. hand, so you go ahead and keep talking, we'll go to the, to the next, yeah. So my question is, so I said that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, mm -hmm. but Paul said, don't eat with them. No, so, no. so, so the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the what, distinction what's, is, what's the, we were talking yeah. about believers versus unbelievers. Okay. Okay. And so <clears throat> unbelievers are people who've not signed up for this. They're not people who say that they're Christians. They're not saying that they want to be accountable, that they, no, no, no. Those, they're just saying, hey, I'm doing me. And so we go, look, I get that. All right. So I'm going to love you and I'm going to show you what it looks like to, to follow Jesus and hope in hopes that you will follow. We're talking about professing Christians here. People who have said, I am a Christ follower. Um, and when you're a Christ follower, you live up to certain expectations and you submit to the accountability of your church community. So that's who we're talking about here. We're, okay. not, talk, we're not policing the world. And Paul even says, look, how are you going to go out and condemn the, the, these people in the world when they haven't signed up for this? They didn't agree to any of this. And so that's why we can't, we, we're talking about specifically believers who are in our community, not the people who are outside of it. So there's one thing that I, that came up in my study that I think kind of helps with this. And it's the idea, and I wrote it on the side, um, that this whole section is about self-discipline. Um, that this whole chapter at verse 18 is very individual. Like a lot of times, a lot of scripture is, is written to the community as a whole. And this is really written to individual believers and how they behave, how you personally behave. And so I wonder if part of this too is um, sometimes we have a problem with this because it's like, all right, Matt and Cody, you know, we're not going to talk to Chelsea anymore. Or, you know, <laughs> we're like, we're going to do this together. But this is really about you and your relationship with that person and your relationship with God. And it, does that make sense that it's, yeah, so it's a very self-disciplined individual thing that you, we are each doing together. Yeah, the reality is, is we are allowed to come to God as we are. We are not allowed to stay as we are. Like any loving relationship, it's moving towards, uh, uh, in our case, with God's holiness, right? Um, but in this case of the believer, the, the, the purpose of excommunication is for people to sit in their sinful. Wait, wait, wait. I wrote this down, but I wasn't going to say it. Did you say excommunication? Yeah. Are we, is that a thing still? Yeah, is that still happening? speaking, it absolutely is. Okay. Yeah. So right. people are, so the, the purpose of excommunication, uh, uh, whether that be ecclesiastic in the church or from, from a, a friend who uh, says they are a believer but is not living that way, is for them to sit in their sinful depravity so that they, they notice the depravity they're sitting in and it develops the heart of repentance to come back to uh, uh, what was good, which is, the, which is the, the community that God has placed here on earth. Right. So, the, so I, I'm getting a lot of people asking kind of similar questions. Let me give you a couple of them and then I'll, I'll explain this one more time and then we'll move on. Um, so this one, so someone is saying, so you're saying don't be friends with, with gay people. Does a parent kick out a child who has come out to them? I thought we were supposed to love them into the kingdom. And so um, again, we want to make sure that we're, we're clear on, on what we're saying here. So what we're saying is think of sin as, a, um, as an addiction because it is. It's an addiction to pride or to lust or to whatever. Um, the way that we deal with addiction is the same way that we deal with sin inside the church. Again, I'm going to make this really clear. This is inside the church. This is people who are professing believers who are part of the church community. Not people outside, only the people inside. We would deal with addiction the same way we deal with sin, which is we come and we say, hey, I think you've got a problem here. And if you're unwilling to hear it and you're unwilling to deal with it, then we go and I go, Matt, we need to talk to Autumn. We got a pro like, 
you have a problem. You need to, you know, okay, whatever. Uh, and then if she still says, no, I don't, I don't want to hear that. I don't want anything to do with that. We bring it to, let's say, our small group. And our small group says, Autumn, you have a problem here. We need to deal with this. You can't be living with someone who is not your spouse, whatever. Um, and then you say, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. Then we go, okay, we love you, but we're not going to enable you to continue to live in sin. And so when you're ready, we want to welcome you back into our community and back into our church family and all that. But until then, we can't continue to enable you. It makes sense when we're talking about drugs and alcohol. Well, we, we, it, it, it doesn't make sense when we're talking about sin. It's because we've then, um, we've missed how deadly sin is, and we somehow think that drugs and alcohol are more deadly than sin in our life. And so that's kind of the, the whole idea there. Now, if we're talking about people who are outside the church, again, rules don't apply to them. Is Jesus went and he hung out with prostitutes and he hung out with all these drug dealers and all this, and because they didn't sign up for this. And so, yes, we're supposed to love them into the kingdom. But once they've come into the kingdom, when we've said Jesus is Lord, all right, well, we got to start making sure that we're, we're all living like that in truth and love. And that's the really important balance. It's got to be in truth and love. You can't just be all love. You can't be all truth. There's got to be a balance there. Okay, um, we'll come back to that if we have time at the end. I just feel like we could probably spend all night and I opened up a can of worms there. Can I give you a couple more it's quick questions? Hat. Yeah, it's probably the tractor hat. It just Good. makes me feel free. You know, it just is, I feel like I'm in the wild west. Okay, um, it says, uh, what is the sign of Jonah? Go. What is the sign of Jonah? Yeah, so uh, I'm actually kind of great. Part of that. We'll go to that next. Why did Moses and Elijah appear in transfiguration? I think I'm you're going to talk about that, that too. too. Um, and let me see. Something about legalism. Hopefully I clarified that. All right. Why don't you go and then we'll, uh, we'll come back around. How much time do I have? Oh, you got plenty of time. Go. Do your thing. Go do your thing. All right. All right. So uh, I do the job no one else wants to do, um, which is answer the tough questions. I'm just kidding. Um, and so here's what we're doing uh, today. If you were like me, you read uh, Matthew 14 all the way through 18, and there were some passages uh, that you were like, what? What's happening? What, is this, what does this mean, right? And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Like every week, I'm in the ESV version. And uh, we're going to do three kind of tough questions through some sections of Scripture that are challenging. And my job is to kind of give you some clarity, hopefully, um, by the end of uh, my little talk today. Question number one is this, what does it mean to honor God with your lips, but not your heart? Follow with me. Matthew 15, verse one, it says this. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break, and I want you to highlight this if you have your Bibles with you, the traditions of the elders. Notice where these traditions come from. But they do not wash their hands when they eat. So what, what the, the critique is, is not that like, Jesus' disciples are a bunch of like nasty junior high kids who don't wash their hands. That's not, that's not what's being said here. It's actually a specific way that they were supposed to wash their hand that was taught as a tradition but not found in Scripture. Like the left hand was first, then the right hand. It was a very specific way to wash your hand. That's the critique here. It continues and says, And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. Verse 6, he need not his father. Uh, let me give you some quick kind of clarity here. The scripture in Exodus chapter 20, a commandment is we are to honor our mother and father. There was a tradition that came in the early uh, 
Jewish faith that kind of allowed a loophole around this. And that was when your parents became elderly, you were allowed basically to treat them differently. Not to like disrespect them and treat them poorly, but not to the same standard of when you were in their own house. And that's what's being talked about here. And the Jewish rabbis and Pharisees actually taught, yeah, you can actually treat your parents a little bit worse the older that they get, which is terrible. It says this, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, highlight that. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? And he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So let me give you some context here. Uh, the Pharisees are critiquing Jesus' disciples because they were not following a, uh, a Jewish tradition. Now, it's important for you to know that this Jewish tradition is not grounded in Scripture. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to show how they're willing to follow something called the Halaic tradition. Uh, last week, I, I mentioned something called uh, the Mishnah. The Mishnah was written in about 200 AD. The Halaic tradition is basically the oral form of that before it was written down uh, uh, in a book, basically. And so they're saying that, Jesus is saying, look, you're, you're willing to elevate the, the, the traditions of man up to that and on par with God, and you're holding people accountable to these traditions like we should hold people accountable to God's word and his commandments. He's saying that's wrong. So this is the very first time that Jesus actually calls uh, the Pharisees and the religious rulers and the scribes hypocrites. Now, we all know in essence what, what hypocrisy is. It refers to, the, uh, uh, to someone believing something but acting in a completely different manner. In uh, the book of Exodus chapter 20 also, we have this, uh, it says, you should not use God's name in vain. Now, we misinterpret this. Um, we think it's like when you stub your toe and you use God's name as a cuss word, like that's using God's name in vain. And there's a part of that that's true, but more so what it really means is to identify with, with Jesus, to identify with God, yet live a life that's not in accordance with that proclamation. That is what it means to use God's name in, in vain. In essence, you're being, you're being a hypocrite, right? And so the word here, hypocrite, from the Greek actually means, the ter- it's where they get the word actor. And what, what it means is one who wears a mask. In other words, someone who pretends to be someone that they, they are not. Now, the Bible's clear. It calls hypocrisy a sin, and honoring God with your lips but not your heart, that is a sin. It's the sin of hypocrisy. Now, there are two forms hypocrisy can take, that of a professing belief and then not living in accordance with that belief. Number two, looking down on others and we ourselves are flawed human beings, right? So having a sense of ego or pride. Now, churches are full of people who know about Jesus. That's to say that they know some things like, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, Well, I'll give you an example in a second. Churches are full of people who know tons of things about Jesus, but some people maybe actually don't know Jesus. And I want you to understand, there is a huge difference there. This passage we know is directed towards people who who have a relationship, uh, who say they have a relationship with with Jesus, right? They are religious people. We know this because Jesus is quoting here in Matthew chapter 15, verse uh, 8 through 9, uh, Isaiah 29, verse 13, which says, these people honor me with my lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so that passage was directed towards religious people. That's why we know Jesus here is talking about religious people. Now, the reality is it can be easy, super easy for us to substitute religion for relationship with Jesus. Now, doing uh, the right things, uh, adhering to certain theological, uh, uh, correct theological beliefs, but not giving our hearts over to him. We talked a few weeks back that even Satan and the demonic realm have an accurate understanding, theologically speaking, of the deity of Jesus Christ. They have just not volitionally given them uh, uh, their hearts, right? And so knowing Jesus is so much more uh, than about just knowing certain facts about him. I mean, there's, a, there's New Testament scholars who are, are, are atheists, a guy named Bart Ehrman, right? He knows probably more about the words of Jesus uh, than, I, than I do, and he doesn't have a relationship with them at all. So there's, different, there's a huge difference between knowing things about Jesus and actually personally developing a relationship with him. I think last week I said you can revere God in your mind but not receive him in your heart. There's a huge difference there. 
And so the point is, the character of Jesus cannot, cannot remain as facts on a page. They have to move from facts to faith, right? From religion to relationship, from intellectual assent to the humble submission of our hearts to him. And so another thing I want us to kind of focus on is we have to remember that that God isn't primarily concerned about what we do. He's most primarily concerned about who we are becoming. Because if you become the right person, you'll, you'll intrinsically want to do what is right, right? Uh, in our Ephesians um, masterclass, we talked about a, 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 a very specific uh, phrase in Ephesians, but that relates to the book of Jeremiah, where he says, that I'm going to one day plant my, my, my moral code basically in their hearts via my spirit. And uh, what this is called is vol- volitional regeneration. I mean, that God is actively working inside us to become the right people. We will never become the right person by trying to become the right person. We become the right person by having a right relationship with Jesus Christ, opening ourselves up to his spirit for his spirit to change us. See, the Pharisees weren't people who were willing to do this. Second thing is you have to understand that Jesus is a person. He's a relational being. And so to know him is to enter into a relationship with him. The point is the greatest commandment Right? It's not to know God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, like in Deuteronomy 6 or in the book of Matthew. It's to love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? He's relational. Question number two, what's up with Matthew chapter uh, 15, verses 22 uh, to 28? If you guys will follow with me, it's kind of an interesting passage. It says this, Cody, do you have any questions or you want to keep going? Keep going. And behold, a Canaanite woman, really quick, um, there's so much here, I'm going to have to go quick. Um, the Canaanite, Matthew thought it was so important for us to in- put that word in there, Canaanite, because he wanted us to understand that there was a rich historical uh, history of these two people groups, the Jews and Israelites, right, and the the Canaanites being like mortal enemies with each other. So behold, the Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, have mercy mercy on me, O Lord, if you have your Bibles, highlight son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You can highlight that too. Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Like, sounds harsh. She said, Yes, Lord, not yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. Your daughter was healed instantly. Now, let me be honest with you. Have you ever, like, read a passage or a section in scripture and it like kind of bothered you? Like full transparency, I read this this last week as I was studying for this and I, it kind of bothered me. Right? Like, well, why would Jesus treat this woman in this way? Like it almost seems, it does seem as you first read it, it's almost kind of disrespectful. I wish we had more time to really dive into this, but for the time we have, I want you to track with me. A few things you need to know. Number one, the whole story actually starts off in verse 21 where Jesus is being in a place that he hasn't really been before, and he was getting away from the Israelites, the Jewish people, and he was going to the Canaanite country, uh, I believe, to meet with this woman. I believe this was actually a divine uh, appointment that Jesus was making. Now, the section of Scripture just before this, another important thing you need to know, closes with Jesus in Israel trying to convince his people, the, the Pharisees, the religious rulers, and the Jewish people in totality, that he was the promised Messiah, right? He was who he has claimed to be. And so he's performing miracles, speaking with authority, unlocking, giving wisdom and discernment. And these people have such hard hearts. Remember, these are supposed to be his family. This is supposed to be the people who are supposed to recognize them when he knocks on, knocks on the door. And so... They ask for a sign. They're, okay, well, g- give us a sign. Give us a sign. He says there'll be nothing but the sign of Jonah. Well, Jonah was what? He was in the belly of a fish for three days. So there was this, he, he's metaphorically uh, uh, foreshadowing his resurrection, what, what's going to happen. He's saying there'll be no other sign other than the resurrection, which is a huge sign, by the way, right? Now, another point you need to know is that Jesus here 
uh, is in Gentile territory, right? So now this, this, the scene opens and he's in Gentile territory meeting with a woman who is not Jewish, right? Doesn't know the Torah, doesn't know some of the prophecies contained in it, and is convinced without ever even really meeting him and yeah, that he's the promised Messiah. So here's this non-Jewish woman who doesn't even need to ask for a sign, who immediately attributes that this man who she's heard of, that he is the promised Messiah, doesn't even ask for a sign, even though the Jewish people were, all they were asking for was a sign. Now, Jesus in this section of scripture does something interesting and indicative of how he often would relate uh, to people. Sometimes Jesus would put a hurdle, one commentary said a, a stumbling block, in front of people to see if they had the type of faith to jump over it. For example, in the book of um, uh, Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 17 and 18, it's a story of a rich man coming to Jesus, says this, as he was setting out his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to go to heaven? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God, God alone. Now, here's what Jesus was not doing. Jesus was not saying that he wasn't good. Jesus was not saying that he wasn't God, but rather he was interested in the response of this man because the response of this man would show what this person really thought of who Jesus really was, right? Now, let me kind of get back to the story because there's a lot really to kind of journey through. Uh, if you're like me, you read, the, you read the passage and it looked like Jesus was coming off extraordinarily like brash and harsh, right? But what we need to understand is he's using this moment this situation, this woman, as actually an illustration. There's two things I want you guys to know. Number one is this, that this Gentile woman had greater faith than the Jews who had special historical privilege and proximity to God through Judaism, and that was an embarrassment. It was an embarrassment because these religious rulers, the Jewish people, should have known that Jesus was who he claimed to be without even asking for a sign. And so this is an embarrassment. This woman who has, doesn't really even understand the Old Testament, whether it be the 39 books or the Torah, doesn't understand it that much, but has more faith than you. By the way, when it says, oh, you of great faith, there's not another person in the entire Bible that Jesus said that to. Oh, you of great faith. There's another story that uses the, a similar phrase, but it's not directed to the person, it was directed to the crowd. This is the only time that Jesus says, oh, you of great faith. Now, the reason that she had a great faith was that she didn't allow the man-made traditions of Jewish rabbis that they made up, uh, didn't allow those things to really inhibit her from seeing who Jesus really was. Now, these traditions kind of bred a belief in the Jewish people that God was most primarily occupied by their sense of goodness. They didn't really believe they needed a savior. Rather, the only savior they think they really needed was a geopolitical one, right? Because his, uh, history tells the tale of uh, Israel being conquered by tons of, from, from Egypt to the Assyrians to uh, the Babylonians, I mean, to the Greeks. I mean, there's just tons of different cultures and now the Romans that have, they kind of pushed uh, the Israelites under their, their thumb, right? And so the Jewish people, especially the Pharisees, thought there was going to be a geopolitical savior. What this woman, and why she has such great faith, is she realized that Jesus wasn't going to be potentially those things, but a savior for her sin. And that's what actually saved her and led to the, uh, uh, the saving, I guess we would say, of her daughter. Number two, the title, Son of David. It operates as, and it's a big word here, so I'll define it in a second, eschatological shepherd for the Jewish people. So the, the title, Son of David, has history in the Davidic covenant, and it operates as an eschatological shepherd for the Jewish people. Here's, here's what that means. Jesus is to restore and care for Israel first, and then extend that plan for restoration and care to the rest of the world. Now, Jesus, we all know this, he was Jewish, and he was the Jewish promised Messiah. So it makes sense that his message, right, should go, go first to those who were in his family. I mean, you would never give 
good news to strangers before you would want to give them to your family. I mean, you can't imagine if your son or daughter said that they were, they were going to be having a kid and uh, they told their neighbors and a bunch of friends before they ended up telling you, you'd kind of be heartbreaking. Like, that doesn't make sense. I thought we were close. I thought we were, I thought our relationship was a little bit different than that. So good news always goes to the family before it goes outward. And that's kind of what's happening here. Now, Jesus's primary mission was to Israel. One, because of prophecy, the Old Testament kind of commanded that he had certain prophecies he needed to fulfill. And then second, because he was a person. He understood that he couldn't do everything at once and he was limited by his humanity. And so he needed to focus all of his energies and all of his efforts um, on this one task, the mission of Israel, to save the lost of Israel. And so number one, Jesus' primary mission was to Israel. So our mission, empowered by his spirit, could be to the world. In the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 28, Jesus gives us something called the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you, and surely I'll be with you to the very ends of the age. What's the, what's the most important? To all. That, that's our mission. Jesus' mission was really centered around Israel so that ours, empowered by his Spirit, could be to the rest of the world. Finally, question number three, and uh, I'll go through this super quick. Um, what is a transfiguration? What is its purpose? Follow with me, verse seven, or chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. I'll read it quickly. It says, After six days, Jesus took with them Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up, a, 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 up to a mountain by themselves. Verse 2, he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Highlight this in your Bibles. Listen to him. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but just Jesus. Tons here, but number one, the word transfiguration in Latin simply means, uh, uh, signifies a change or form, uh, a difference in appearance. Now, the transfiguration was significant for these three disciples who were there because, number one, it was a glimpse of Jesus' divinity, of his glory, right, of his perfected body. And uh, number two, it was an accurate understanding of who he really was. This is called something, and I don't have much time to talk about this, a theophany. A theophany in Scripture is where God physically manifests himself in his glory. Uh, I did that to Moses uh, when uh, Paul was kicked off the donkey, right? These are called theophanies, right? And they happen all throughout Scripture. That's what's happening in this moment right now. Now, what happened on the mountain of transfiguration is parallels to what happened on the mountain of Sinai in the book of Exodus. I mean, just see some of the parables, or uh, parallels. Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God and came back with his face shining. That's in Exodus 34. In the section uh, that we're covering today, Jesus, who, go, who is God, goes up on a mountain and uh, he has a shining face and meets with Moses. And then finally, the same voice that spoke to Moses centuries and centuries earlier speaks again and makes it clear that Jesus came not as a recipient of revelation from God, right? That he wasn't going to be the one writing any things down. That there was no new revelation that was going to be coming down from uh, God's, from, from the Father's words from heaven, but rather that he was the very and final revelation of God himself, right? It wasn't, I'm not going to be on a Zoom meeting anymore. I'm not going to be sending text messages. I am literally now showing up. I'm the final revelation of God because I am God himself. In fact, the appearance of Moses and Elijah are huge in understanding the importance of this event. And I'll hand it over to Cody in a second. Number one, Moses was the lawgiver, lawgiver, right? He was the one that like literally wrote down the Ten Commandments and then walked back down. And number two was Elijah. He was considered the greatest of all of the prophets. And so before I hand it over, here's kind of the last thing I want you guys to know. What's being said is that all of the law, all of the 613 laws of the Old Testament, the major, major and minor prophets of the Old Testament as well, all of them were all pointing all of human history and all of human culture to this climactic moment and to this one person, Jesus Christ. And that really is what the purpose of the transfiguration is. That's all cool. I got. Thank you, Matt. <clears throat> okay. 
Um, we are about to run out of time. I know that we've got some questions. Any questions in the house first that uh, we want to address? Yes, we've got some here. And then just raise your hand so we can kind of see who's next and, and we'll, we'll get going. Yeah. Yeah, my, my question is, is basic. I'm not trying to stump anybody. I just want to know the answer. <clears throat> Matthew 16.20. I don't even have it pulled up here, so if you guys can pull it up. But, uh, so here we have Jesus doing all these miracles, signs, wonders, what have you. And in 16.20, I hope I have that right, we have him telling, actually charging his disciples Tell no one I am Christ. Why would he do that if he's showing everybody these miracles that obviously he's deity or something not of this world, yet he's telling his disciples, don't tell anyone I'm Christ. Right. So uh, I think we may have talked about it a couple weeks ago. I don't remember if we, I feel like Doyle mentioned it a couple weeks ago, but um, Jesus has a game plan. And so he has a very specific plan and timeline. And so he's not trying to um, disrupt his plan by letting people in on the fact that he's the Messiah. Because as we are going to see in the next couple of weeks here is he had this plan where he was, and you said this at the very beginning, he was traveling all around the place, except he seemed to be avoiding going into Jerusalem for this very specific time. And it's because he had a very um, specific time and purpose, and he didn't want that to be ruined. And so he's like, all right, don't let everybody know. We don't need to make a big commotion about this whole deal because I'm still working up to the grand finale, which is, of course, his death and resurrection. And so that's why he kind of tells people to keep it on the, on the down low. Does that make sense? Cool. Okay. Um, yes, we got a question here in the back. I was just wondering where, did it say something about, um, I can't believe I'm on this <laughs> microphone, but anyway, um, that we reject people or not enable people or something to, to that effect? Because I'm, I'm taught different and I'm, I, I go to a different church, but, and we're, I'm taught, or I, I believe that it's the Holy Spirit that convicts people. I don't convict people. But I just was wondering, did it say that in the scripture, that that's what we're supposed to do? Yeah, so um, I gotten, I've gotten quite a few questions on this. I knew I would. So let me, um, let me just take a minute on this again, because I had other questions about very specific examples of people who their friends are kind of in the middle of sin or whatever. Um, so the, the examples that we're talking about is the one that we talked about today, which do you have that with you really yeah, quick? Yeah, I mean, it says... If if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Okay, so if they sin, go and point out their That's... fault. And then if they don't respond to it, then it says treat them as um, tax collectors or unbelievers. And then I also gave that one with uh, Paul um, where he talks about do not even eat with such people. And so the, the, the point is, is we're talking about Christians, okay? So again, I want to make that very clear. We're not talking about non-Christians because Jesus clearly went and he hung out with non-Christians all the time. It didn't matter who they were or what they were up to. He sat down with the, you know, the outcasts of society and he loved on them. So that is not in question here. What we're talking about is church discipline, not something that we like to talk about. In fact, it's probably a, a topic that we try to avoid most of the time is there is such thing as church discipline, is as a church, when we come together, what we're doing is we are the ecclesia. We are the gathering of people who declare that Jesus is king, that he is the ultimate authority of our life. 
And so when we say that, we're not only declaring it to him, but we're declaring it to one another. And we're saying, look, um, we are all following Jesus. We're citizens in his kingdom. And so we're going to keep each other accountable to make sure we're heading in the right direction. This whole idea of iron sharpens iron. And so if, um, if I am living in opposition to what I have declared and I also uh, have committed to, then people are going to keep me accountable. Just like if I were mistreating my wife. If I were doing something that I was, you know, giving my wife attitude or whatever, and other people around me saw, especially family, and Matt said, hey, Cody, I don't think you're treating Amy correctly. I would say, you know what? You're right. I didn't see that. I need to go and I need to fix that. Now, let's say that he comes up to me and he says, now, um, Cody, not only are you not treating right, but I see that you are over here with this other woman. Well, he would call me out on that because I've made this commitment to her. And as a part of my family, he's now trying to make sure that I'm staying uh, faithful to that commitment. Well, the same is true with our faith community is I'm following Jesus. We're going to follow Jesus together because here's the, and, and I could do a whole talk on this and I have, is we think of faith as uh, primarily an individualistic thing, a personal thing, which it's true, it is, but it's not just individualistic. When we commit to Christ, we're not just committing to a relationship with him, but we're committing to being a part of his family. And so when we are a part of his family, we have family responsibilities. And so that's part of the family responsibilities is if I see a brother or sister who is messing up, I want to, in love, let them know that. Now, if they refuse to, to turn around and to do anything about that, then I'm going to bring the rest of the family and go, hey, we're, we're going to have an intervention here. And if they continue to refuse and they won't listen to the intervention of the family, then I'm going to say, look, I love you, but we can't have anything to do with you right now because you are being enabled by us. So it literally, intervention is the biblical model of what we, when we deal with uh, drugs and alcohol, it is the same thing when we're dealing with sin within the church. It's all about love and I want the best for you, but if you don't want the best for you, I can't sit around and watch you to kill yourself. I can't let drugs and alcohol destroy you. Well, I can't let sin destroy you and me sit around and watch it either. And so it's the exact same idea is drugs and alcohol intervention, bringing people around same when it comes to discipline in the church. And so I've gotten a lot of questions about this, um, even asking me about like very specific things about, um, you know, what do I do if, uh, and this was back to the, and and I knew this was going to be a hot topic. I didn't know it would come up tonight is uh, my, my child is gay, but they're also a believer do I not encourage their relationship? And what if they get married one day? Or what if someone that I know is in a same-sex relationship and they're getting married? Do I not go and support them? Well, wow, that's a whoo. Can I just tell them? So there is a guy, his name is Preston Sprinkle. Um, his name makes it sound like he, well, anyway. Yeah. He, he's, he's an amazing Christian man. And he has an organization called the Center for Individual, what's it called? Gender and sexuality, uh, gender and sexuality. And um, he actually has spoken here at Seacoast before. And all of those questions, he has a completely biblical theological answer. Actually, him and I didn't agree on some of the things because I did an interview with him. Do you remember that? I was there. Yeah. And I didn't agree with some of the answers that he gave. Well, I think he's smarter than Cody. That's fine. You can think smarter than (laughs) You can think what you want. Autumn will be looking for a new job soon if anybody. (laughs) No. One word. Can I just? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So the most important thing about this, because I hear your heart and I love it. Um. Yeah, so number one, this person's a believer. And number two, this is the most, 
equally as important as being a believer. They have no heart of repentance, no desire to change. This is, this is, this is in, in Cody's analogy would be, uh, yeah, no, I don't care how I treat my wife and I'm going to step outside the bounds of my marriage. Now, I would treat him differently in that moment than uh, when Nathan came to David, when David killed, killed his best friend Uriah and slept with his wife Bathsheba, and he immediately had a volitional change, a, 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 a man after God's own heart because he had a heart of repentance. And that's what's being talked about there. So when we talk about this idea of excommunication, it's serious, and it's only, it's only ever supposed to be implemented when this individual has no heart to change. And they, they are a member of, uh, they're wanting to be a, a member of the body of Christ, and they're toxic. Um, and, and they're spewing hate and venom and, and they have no repentive heart. And they're self-destructive. Yeah. You know, um, I'm getting a lot of questions about, okay, what do we do about, and it's from different people. This is interesting. Um, it seems like homosexuality is a big issue that a lot of people are trying to wrestle with and how do we make sense Sorry, of that? Sorry, can I, so can I correct my, what I said? Yeah. So it's the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. I don't want to send you to the wrong place. So the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, and it's Preston Press and Sprinkle. Sprinkle. Okay. So. Um, a lot of people are asking me about uh, what do we do about people who are homosexuals and claim to be Christians, and what about those who want to get married or in a same-sex relationship and things like that. And, and this is a much bigger topic for another night, um, and we have tackled this numerous times. Um, I actually had a friend of mine, Beckett Cook, who came and he spoke on this topic a little bit, and he's got a book that he recently released, and, and his story is he um, lived as a gay man for, I don't know, 25 years in, in Hollywood, uh, miraculously became a Christ follower, and then now is talking about a life of celibacy and things like that. And so um, some of the key questions that we have to ask about this issue is, um, is not same-sex attraction a sin, because I don't think that our dispositions that we're born with um, are, are volitional. I think that those are things that maybe are just natural to us. So to have that disposition, I don't think is a sin, just like I would say I probably have a natural disposition to be an alcoholic, but if I don't drink, um, I haven't given in to that disposition. So, so that's the first question, is, um, is it wrong to have same-sex attraction? No, I, I don't think it is, because I don't think that that's under your control. But what is under your control is how you act on those things. Um, so the other question is, is homosexuality a, a sin as far as the act of? Um, and that's a topic we have gotten into a, a ton before, and I can point you to some talks that I've done before, but the Bible seems pretty clear. The church has been unanimous the last 2,000 years that, hey, we were designed to be man and woman um, in a covenant relationship with one another, and that is uh, anything outside of that is, is uh, unbiblical. And so, again, I'm probably bringing so many issues to the table right now, and you're like, ah, oh, I want to we'll talk about it, okay? Just relax. Maybe ask me some questions next week and we'll jump into it a little bit more. Um, so then what does it mean to go to a wedding of a same-sex couple? And is that something that we can do? And, um, and I, would, I would ask, well, what is the reason for going? Going to a wedding is to affirm the commitment that these people are making. But if it's a commitment that God is not affirming, how are you going to affirm it? So that would be my short answer for that. And I'm sure I'm going to get lots of emails and uh, questions and things like that on it. But that's another topic for another night. But I've just gotten so many texts and stuff about that. I feel like I would, I don't want to be like a coward and not address it because I, it is an important topic. So. Can, I, can I say one thing? Yeah. I think we're closing here. Um, I think that even this discussion is something that we really naturally do as human beings is we find um, something that maybe uh, touches on us. You know, Jesus has just 
told us a bunch of things that actually personally affect us in our life. And we've all kind of latched onto this one subject that we can have an argument or a debate about. And it kind of takes that argument or, or that touch that Jesus, that, that little touch that Jesus made on our heart and kind of puts it outside of ourselves and says, okay, we can have an argument now about this. Um, and I want to challenge you tonight to not do that, to not let um, your group discussions all be about um, homosexuality, which is not mentioned at all in this passage that we just watched, 14 through through 18, it's not mentioned in there at all. Um, But there are other things that are. There's there's bitterness, there's unforgiveness, there's lack of reconciliation, there's pride, there's, you know, all of these other things that you deal with every day. You wake up every single day and you deal with those things. So don't ignore those things to talk about some big issue, um, which we would love to talk with you about sometime, but look at your pride. Look at the things that are standing in the way of your relationship with other people. Those are the things that um, I believe Jesus has brought to our attention um, for this week that, that, that I personally need to deal with and that you personally need to deal with. And those are going to move you forward in your faith wherever you stand on same-sex sexual relationships. That's yeah, there's an old saying that the Bible is a book not only that you read, but it reads you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what you're, you're getting at. So that's, yeah. that's really good. Thank you for that. Um, okay, so um, if you have any other questions, feel free to text them in and we'll try to address them next time. If you have any here, uh, welcome to hang out afterward and we can discuss and things like that. Man, that was fiery. That was fun. <laughs> I feel like every week we're getting like more and more fiery questions and I'm loving it's it. It's really so, when Doyle's not here. When Doyle is not here, everybody <laughs> just fires the difficult right. questions. Anyway, thank you guys for joining us. We will see you this weekend at service. Have great discussions in your group. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live outdoor services underneath our tent at Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 9 a.m. You can always join us online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.